Welcome back to the Red Dice Stories RPG Podcast. I'm your host, John, and today we're going to be answering some of your voicemails. And first up, we've got a couple of calls from Jason Connolly of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Take it away, Jason. Hey, John. Jason here. Great episode on Monster Weaknesses. The, the, only, other, the only thing I would mention is maybe prepare a couple different ideas in advance for how you're going to give them that weakness, right? The, the whole rule threes have clues available in threes. I mean, the players may not need to uncover all three clues, but sometimes players can be kind of pig-headed or not pick up on things. So unless you really directly feed it to them, you may need that rule of three, you know, so they can find it different ways so it sinks in, hey, this might work. Just an idea. The, the other thing is I would consider, and I know this is kind of the quantum ogre thing, but if the players come up with something really cool that sounds plausible and you think in your head, hey, that's I should have thought of that, then I would let that work personally just because you want to reward that smart behavior on their part. Take care. Yeah, I think you make some very good points there, Jason. Yeah, ideally, if you have time, you should prepare a few reasons and ways for which your players can find out these clues and discover these monster weaknesses. So you're not sort of caught on the hop. You can just pretty much drop them in as and when they discover them. But yeah, also I'm a great fan of if the player characters come up with something better than the ideas that you've originally got, hell, just roll with that. It's not like they ever have to know and it's not like you're just giving them an easy win. As you say, you're rewarding their creativity. Hey, John, Jason here. Listen to your curating random episodes episode, random tables episode. I don't know. I'm tired. Um, great episode, and I think you, you hit the nail on the head. This is something you work out before the the game, you know, before the campaign, or even before the session. If you know you're going to go somewhere and you're going to need certain tables, you know, find them before the session so you have them handy. But great episode, some great suggestions in there. The, you know, especially Goblin Henchman Sex Flower. Really like those. And yeah, I'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Thanks very much, Jason. Glad you enjoyed the episode. And yeah, I think this curating of the tables is definitely something you want to do between sessions. Like, for instance, I've got a book called The Metamorphica, which has a number of like mutation tables in. And I also use some of the gloom touched deformities from the Middlelands book by Monkey Blood Design. But I only need those in certain sessions if like mutations are going to be a thing or are likely to be a thing. So mostly I only get those tables out if I know that they're going to crop up in the session. Don't get me wrong, I've got them nearby. So if like somehow an unexpected mutation occur, I could easily just have a quick break, go and grab the book or even just duck out and grab the book and I'll be good to go. But I don't need to have them taking up space on my desk apart from in those sessions where I know that mutations are going to occur. Yeah, I'm also a big fan of Goblin Henchman's Hex Flowers. And speaking of Goblin's Henchman, the maestro himself, we've got a couple of calls from him now about alignment. Hi, John. Just quickly on um, alignment. So the way it was always explained to me in AD&D, at least, was that lawful meant that you generally obeyed the rules, um, whereas chaos was more like rebellious. It's not so much chaos, but... You, you don't think rules apply to you, you don't want to follow them, and therefore the side effect is chaos. Um, so, you know, by way of example, if we make the premise that the Republican Party in the US is evil, let's just go with that, then Mitch McConnell is lawful evil because he uses the mechanisms and laws to get what he wants. 
the Trump base would be chaotic evil because they just they just don't want to obey any rules. If there's a restriction on them, they're going to buck it. It's all about just, I'm not going to do what I'm told kind of mentality. And then finally, Trump himself would be neutral evil because he's willing to play both sides. He'll use the law when it suits him and he'll use chaos when it suits him. So he's neutral evil, or as I prefer to call it, evil. (laughs) Cheers. Well, I've got to confess, I don't have any great insight into US politics. I'm certainly no expert as far as that goes. I mean, hell, in the UK, we can barely get a handle on our own politics and we've got our own problems with regards to leaders. So I generally try and stay out of that sort of thing when I'm talking about gaming. But yeah, in terms of alignment, I sort of go with the the basic BX style of alignment where it's law, neutral and chaos. But I suppose I've been influenced a little bit by reading Lamentations of the Flame Princess where it equates these alignments to how you are aligned with the sort of cosmic forces of law and chaos so law is sort of building things constructing something permanent wanting to leave a lasting legacy very few people sort of follow this the vast majority of people are neutral which is you know just getting by day to day it can be a bit selfish but also people who are just trying to make their way in the world would be classified as neutral whereas to be chaotic is to be linked with forces of entropy and destruction and wanting to tear down the fabric of society. Now, that's not how it's portrayed in all versions of D&D, as you've rightly said, but I suppose that's how I've been influenced by my reading of Lamentation of the Flame Princess, and that's certainly how I tend to think of it. And it makes it easier to tie in things like alignment languages and such like if it actually represents some sort of link, no matter how nascent, to one of these larger cosmic principles but anyway i think uh, goblin sanctuaries has got something more to say about alignment so go ahead dude so i suppose if i was to sort of uh, you know i'm happy with good neutral and evil that axis but i'm not never really like the the, the other axis about law i think lawful's good um but i'd either just so, so if we're doing evil i'd go lawful evil and then it would either just be evil or perhaps pragmatic evil and then finally um i'd quite like to say anti-lawful evil but that's too that's a bit of a mouthful and then you've got uh, anti-establishment evil, again, a bit of mouthful. So maybe just rebel evil or rebellious evil, even that's too long. This is probably why they settled on chaos. They couldn't quite think of a word that was snappy enough. Um, yeah, all right. Just where That's just what I think. We, or we just stick with the uh, ambiguous titles and just roll with it and let people just decide what that means for them. Okay, cheers, Philip. Thanks very much for the messages, Goblins Henchman. Yeah, I pretty much agree. I sort of set out my stall, so to speak, with the with regards to law, neutrality, and chaos. And I sort of put out there at the start what it means in terms of my game. But then I largely leave it to how the players see that. For instance, my friend Dave is playing a chaotic thief in one of my campaigns at the moment my smoke and snow campaign and he tends to see it rather as someone who sort of revels in chaos and sort of setting up plans and things like that and watching the dominoes fall in his bid to become a criminal slash thieves guild mastermind and that's fine it's very rarely i'll pull someone up on their alignment i suppose if someone was constantly playing like extremely against their alignment like you're playing a good character and you go around like killing folk all the time i'd probably say to them after a bit you're not really playing a good alignment are you although i don't really have the good alignment in my game and lawful can be just as evil in inverted commas 
as chaos in pursuit of its own goals so that's why i like that but like i say i can understand it's not for everyone but thanks for the messages dude always much appreciated and next up we've got a few more messages from jason of the nerds rpg variety cast go ahead jason hey john jason here just want to say that enjoyed your progress in rpgs episode i haven't got my copy of xdm yet or the xdm2 whatever yet that sucks so you got your physical copy already maybe maybe i should read my kickstarter notices i tend not to read the updates from kickstarter so i tend not to know what's happening anyway i find it interesting getting a little of a disagreement maybe disagreements strong word but you know had, had talked some other players in a traveler game that we started actually hostile which uses kind of the cephas engine but the idea of character advancement and that it's not okay for your characters not only to advance through loot and influence and all that you get through role playing because you know classic traveler you don't really have any advancement skills or anything it's all done during character creation personally to me in a game like traveler or in a game like a superhero game like a you're, where you're actually playing marvel or dc heroes that i i really don't care about character advancement mechanical advancement because they're not zero-to-hero games like D&D is. They're not class and level games. So to me, Traveler, all your advancements during creation, and then afterwards, then anything's going to happen to your skills and all is go down after that, really, in Traveler and your tributes. But you might gain loot and you might, you know, learn things and make buddies and things, or not learn things, but, you know, make alliances and things like that. Um, but so it's kind of interesting. I don't know how that plays into what, if the book just talks about that or not. Although that's kind of a sidebar there, isn't it? The other thing I want to mention really quickly was ICRPG. I have them. Actually, I have two print copies, a hard cover and a soft cover, I think. Of uh, I don't know. I have the Modifius copy of um, Master Edition ICRPG, and I bought a copy off Drive Through when it showed up on there or Amazon. I, I don't know. Anyway, I've got I've got it, and I looked at it when I got it. I haven't played ICRPG since I got it. Don't tell anybody. And I don't remember, in the older editions of ICRPG, you didn't start the timer die on a 4, you rolled it. So that timer die might start anywhere from 1 to 4 until the next event happened. So even the DM didn't know how long it would take. Now obviously you could put it down at 4 if you wanted to. I mean, you know, it's a DIY kind of game, so there's a lot of leeway there. But straight mechanics and for excitement and, and to keep the tension up, the idea was to roll it randomly. I, now, like I said, that might have changed your Master Edition. I, I don't remember that change, but just wanted to mention it. With regards to the default timer in ICRPG, you are absolutely correct, Jason. Thanks for picking me up on that. It's been a while since I've run ICRPG myself or read the books, although I have the Master's Edition, and I was sort of going off my memory of it. And you're absolutely right. You do roll it, so there's a bit of uncertainty. But as you say, you know, you can tweak it as you want to suit your own particular gaming needs with regards to your talk about advancement in traveler and stuff like that yeah i suppose for me the important thing is that there is a feeling of some advancement and it's almost of secondary importance to me what format that feeling takes whether it's adding things to your character sheet and getting like stat increases and whatever which 
given that I play OSR clones and sort of BX clones and stuff like that, you don't tend to get massive stat bumps or scad loads of abilities. So that really doesn't bother me. I'm used to sort of like not really getting much extra aside from maybe a few spells and a bit of treasure. But in-game rewards, um, as they do a lot in ICLPG, you know, the sort of loot that you get, that almost forms your advancement and things like into the odd and stuff like that where you're your sort of advancement and what type of character you are are determined by your equipment that can also be a perfectly valid way of advancing your character it's the gear you gain and stuff like that or the contacts you make in games and bits and pieces like that more sort of in character rewards and i think that's absolutely fine as long as there is some sort of feeling of advancement within the game hey john i know this is after the fact you've already played that session but i've played in games that use the rest rules for exploration and after combat and i i think they're useful and make sense but if you're adding it to a new group and and again i know you've already done this but maybe if and i know you're saying jason's recommending a house rule what but you figure out you, yeah i think one thing dnd does leave out although you have effects for resting obviously and you have things you can do during resting i i think this is somewhere you could have a subset of rules kind of like some other games have where during the rest you can do A, B, C, or D, right? And and give you different effects. And so, it, you know, a little subsystem in there. And, you know, maybe if they rest a little bit longer, they can get additional effects. But, you know, obviously that's balanced out by the amount of time they're resting. So, I don't know. What, what do you think about adding a subsystem of things they can do while they rest? Thanks very much for that call in, Jason. Obviously, Jason was referring to the episode where I was talking about rest rules there. And yeah, I think there's definitely space for a particular subsystem of things you can do. I'm not sure whether I'd want to implement one myself because it just seems to be adding a, an extra level of complexity to a, a rule that I've not really used a great deal anyway. I think I'd want to get more sort of used to using it as is you know rules as written before i then started introducing anything else but as with a lot of these sort of osr claims i think you could introduce subsystems and i know for instance that one of the things i've yoinked out of fifth edition is the idea of exhaustion levels where if you've not been resting for such a long time or you've been doing something strenuous like mountain climbing or something like that instead of just like getting penalties you accumulate exhaustion levels and each of those takes so long to dissipate and they give you a variety of effects and if you get to a certain number effectively i mean it takes quite a while and you know you would know that you were getting near it then you may even drop dead of exhaustion maybe this will make the same call in show john but my copy of xdm2 has now showed up so i i also have it which is cool i guess you were just a little bit higher up in the the way they shipped them out but it's cool i've got i don't know i backed it at high enough level i've got a bunch of extra junk in here there's um i got pdfs of course i got the deluxe game master screen audiobook all that stuff with it there's a weird the GM screens where you can slide things into it, and there's some push pins, some other stuff, um, interesting stuff. Anyway, just want to say I, I did get it because I think in a previous message, if I'm not in a fever dream, I told you I di didn't have it yet. So I will now shut up and let other callers talk. And Jason was indeed right. Obviously, both of those calls have been featured in this episode. Yeah, I've enjoyed reading XDM 2nd Edition myself. 
Uh, I didn't back it at a level where I got all the funky extras. I just got the basic hardback book. And I've quite enjoyed reading it. However, I have seen some sort of notes of people who've got copies of it where they didn't really like it. And I do think it sort of leans more towards that sort of storytelling game, inverted commas, style of GMing. And I think it attempts to portray a very specific style and a way of running games which is obviously the author's preference and there's nothing wrong with that but i can see why some people are expecting a more general sort of how to gm style book might have been a little disappointed i quite enjoyed reading it and i'm hoping to get around to doing like a full review of it when i get the time at some point in future touch wood and next up we have a call from joe over at the hind cyclist podcast Take it away, Joe. Yo, John. So I'm just getting into the start of your latest episode, uh, Sandbox Generator, I think. And yeah, at the start, you're talking about how players will never be as interested in your world as you are as the Dungeon Master. And I, I just don't know about that, man. Like my um, last campaign that I ran for my home group before, <laughs> before the world went to shit, they were pretty heavily involved in the world creation. And that led to the players staying as invested and interested in the world as I was throughout the whole like multi-year campaign. They were they were thinking about the world in broader strokes, not just thinking about their character in the here and now, which they were, but they were also thinking about the world and really interested in the world too. So yeah, I don't know. If you set the environment up, I think you can keep players' interests and build their interests in the world as well as the here and now. Anyway, man, that's my thoughts. Peace out. Thanks very much, Joe. And yeah, I think you make an important point there that obviously if you can get the players involved in the creation of the world, so it's more sort of a shared creation rather than just something the GM has come up with and plonked them in the middle of, then yeah, they probably are going to be a little more invested in that. And it's something I've done in the past, whether it's using a microscope with the players helping to create a timeline, whether it's just sort of polling them as to what sort of things they want to see in a campaign. And this does result in a little bit more investment i suppose what i was trying to say in that episode is that obviously when the game is being prepared the the players they they pretty much just sort of turn up and play and that's no shade on players that's what we're expecting them for but as the gm you spend a lot more time immersed in those world of details and that background because while you're trying to make the session and play the npcs the world the events and everything else that's going on so by its very nature you're a little bit more invested in the background of it than your players might be might not be the case with all groups obviously i can only talk for my own experience and i don't believe the player characters should necessarily have to be as invested in the game world as the gm for instance in real life i don't know all the history of the real world going back thousands of years and yet i'm still arguably capable of existing within it and performing my daily functions and we've got the internet history books tv and stuff like that where we can find out about history if we want if you live in a sort of faux medieval world when you don't have that information to hand i imagine the everyday folk might find it a little bit more difficult to know the history of that world and yet they can still carry on with their day-to-day activities so i certainly wouldn't expect the player characters or the players to be as enmeshed in the history of the campaign world as i am as the gm because i've got to know that and how it has a bearing on the current events going on in the game but 
different strokes for different folks don't get me wrong i think if you have got players who really want to delve into that history and stuff like that then that's really great and more power to you thanks for the call dude much appreciated and now we're going to end as we started with some calls from jason of the nerds rpg variety cast hey john jason here i know this is late so if you don't want to play it that's okay but talking about buying used things what i ended up doing for the b series is i went print on demand because they had a bundled package where you get b1 through b9 all printed in the same book so i did that i'll probably use it for a solo game at some point maybe as far as used things, the condition, as long as it's not really water damaged, you, you know, obviously if it has mold in it, then it's a no-go anyway. But it, if it's not water damaged, I don't think it's a big deal. I don't mind writing or, you know, it's got to be usable. And obviously here Jason is referring to the episode I did talking about used, conditioned books and why i preferred them in some ways because you know that they'd been loved and used by the people who previously owned them they weren't just sort of sat on a shelf not being used in their cellophane wrappers and i think you're absolutely correct jason that they do need to at least be usable but if there's a bit of like scribbling in the margins or someone's like colored in a black and white picture i think that sort of gives the book its own charm really but if as long as it's usable i don't mind it being a little bit worn down I'm not I'm not getting things to collect it, never to use it. My intent is to, you know, to page through. And a lot of the things I get are just nostalgia things. Like I recently picked up all the Palladium Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle stuff and copies of like Ninja Spy or Ninjas and Super Spies and, and the games I had back in the day, uh, Heroes Unlimited, that you know, I don't have copies of anymore. So I picked up copies of that kind of stuff just to have it. I don't know that I'll ever run it, but just because I like paging through stuff that has nostalgic memories. I'm weird that way. But yeah, anyhow, great episode. Talk to you later. Thanks very much, dude. Yeah, as I've said, I've fairly recently acquired all of the Orange Spine AD&D first edition books and that was mainly a nostalgia thing because I sort of missed that and I only really came in sort of part way through AD&D second edition and I'd always heard people raving about them and I'd paged through a couple of old busted up copies in my local game store which is unfortunately no longer with us as a bricks and mortar store but I wanted to acquire those as sort of like, like say, nostalgia sort of things and just so I could read through them because I never really had the chance when they came out. John, I'm finishing the last episode. I hadn't listened to the Blood Island episode. Sounds great, but you, you, you slipped. You accidentally said Ascending Armor Class. I, I don't want to have to remove you off my wall as a friend and crimple up your picture from, you know, because that's how the Facebook works. But yeah, man, that's a big slip, but it's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll let you go once you affirm that you really meant Descending Armor Class. Yeah, I do have to confess, Jason, that I do use Ascending Armor Class when I'm running old school essentials. And that's just because personally, I find it a little bit more easier and a little bit intuitive. Now, before anyone starts like tearing up my OSR card or screaming that Thaco and Descending Armor Class isn't really difficult, you're absolutely right. It's not terribly difficult. I personally just find it more intuitive that higher armor class is better. You know, different strokes for different folks. So, and since I've got the option, that's what I use. Why wouldn't I? 
Hey, John, I really like your four-card method. I think it makes a lot of sense. I haven't done anything with conventions for a long time. I need to do that again. I'm actually going to a convention at the end of September, early October, but I'm probably not going to run any RPGs. I'm going to moderate some old board games so people can experience some games they either they played as a kid or they missed out on as a kid. So that ought to be pretty fun. As far as I want to mention also for your pre-gens, you know, I like pre-gens for conventions or for one-shots. And honestly, at an open table game, like a maybe not West Marches, but, you know, an open table game, everybody could show up. I'd be okay if the GM came up with a party of pre-gen characters and whoever showed up that night. Every Friday I'm running my dungeon game, show up, grab one of the characters, run the game. So nobody's necessarily, you know, no character, one character is always one person's character. I'd be okay if you just, okay, you're playing the Ranger tonight. Great. And, and just play the game. I know that's kind of board game-esque, but you can still role play that, you know, and as there's developing character, play into those personality traits. It's no different than, you know, a TV show or a cartoon where, or a comic book where with a different writer, that there might be slightly ver- slight variations on the character's personality. It would work out like that. So, anyway, just a thought. But, yeah, four-card method's great. Really enjoyed it. And think about running that as a one-shot online. Thanks very much for the call, Jason. Yeah, the, the four-card method of preparation for me sort of originally started out of necessity when I was going to be GMing at a convention. I had to travel down there by train, so I was basically restricted to taking a rucksack and a small case of me, and that had to fit all my dice, any paperwork, any rule books, my clothes, and everything else I needed to travel down with me. And obviously, I had to be able to carry it. So the I didn't want to be taking down reams and reams of notes with me. So initially, I started off like trying to write everything down on a few index cards, just as a bit of a space saver. But I ended up finding it really valuable because it forced me to think about what I actually needed to have written down to run the game and what I was comfortable with coming up with off the cuff, so to speak. It also led to me taking a few blank index cards down with me. And as I ran games repeatedly, anything cool that happened in a prior iteration of the game where I was like, oh, I'm going to carry that forward to the next time I run it, I would just note it down on one of these spare index cards. So it started out of necessity, but ended up being a really useful exercise in reducing unnecessary prep. And this is something I've tried to keep going, especially as a result of reading Sly Flourish's Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, where they try and get you to think about what prep adds the most value to your games. As for pre-gens, yeah, I love them for convention scenarios, even though I find sort of creating a lot of them in advance can be a little bit wearisome. It's one of the reasons I like, not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons I like my OSR games for conventions, because there's lots of random online generators where I can just generate like 50 different characters, print a few of them out, and I am good to go. And yeah, I would love to run some more one-shots online as is the case with so many things though it's just a matter of finding the time to actually do that i used to run quite a few one shots of different games whether it be like ffg star wars to fate to uh, icrpg to various other things however i've mostly done that as part of various like facebook communities that sort of had a pool of ready players and i'm not really so involved in that sort of scene and those groups anymore just because i haven't had the time to do it and aside from that i find organizing games and trying to recruit a new group a little bit sort of tiresome so 
and I, I'm a bit of a campaign jam at heart, so I tend to stick more towards that. But I would love to run some more online one-shots again. So who knows, maybe at some point in the future, I'll get around to doing that. Hey, Jason here. Enjoyed listening to your UK Games Expo episode. I hope you guys are both feeling better by the time this message reaches you. I was, well, as you know, I was a little bit sick earlier, you know, earlier this month as well, so... No fun being sick. Um, I when you have a chance, I'd like to have if you do an episode talking about hyperspace D six. Like to hear your further thoughts on the system. Now that I, I take it, you, you got to run it at least once, so I'm kind of curious your thoughts after it being on the table. Um, I I know it's not a whole lot different than West End Games D six, which I'm familiar with, but I'm just kind of I, and I read through hyperspace. I'm kind of curious if you notice anything at the table or how it felt to you. So. Anyhow, keep up the great work, and I will talk to you soon. Thanks very much, Jason. Yeah, myself and Hannah both unfortunately had COVID for a while, but we're both recovered now, and we're feeling much better. I'm sorry to hear you were sick, dude, as well. I'm hoping you are likewise feeling much better. As for Hyperspace D6, your wish is my command, either before or slightly after this episode, since I'm not sure what order I'll be putting them in yet. I hope to do an episode discussing Hyperspace D6. It's not going to be a full review of the book. It's more going to be my initial impressions and my thoughts having run it at the UK Games Expo. Needless to say, I very much enjoyed it, and all of my players seem to find it fairly easy to master and to get into. And it really did do a lot better job of capturing that sort of freewheeling space opera style of Star Wars than some of the official Star Wars games I've actually played in the past. Since I've played most versions of the the assorted Star Wars RPGs going, whether that be D20, Saga Edition, FFG, or the original West End Games D6 version. I've got to admit, I've not played the original WEG game for many, many years, although I have a certain nostalgic fondness for it. So I don't know whether I'll be able to make a direct comparison, but I certainly hope to talk about my experiences of running Hyperspace D6. So hopefully you'll enjoy that episode when it comes out, dude. So there we are. That's all our calls for this episode. Thank you to everyone who called in. If you'd like to call in and maybe be featured in one of these future podcast episodes, then you can do so in a few different ways. You can drop us a voicemail using either SpeakPipe or Anchor, and there'll be a link in the description of this episode. Or you can send us an email to rddrpgpodcast at gmail.com. So until we see you again, take care, stay safe, and whenever you're playing, have fun. <laughs>